0: Hey there, and welcome to episode 37 of Silver Screeners. My name is Frank, and I'm coming at you from the northeast of the United States in New England, here to talk to you about all things movie-related, past, present, and future. But before I go any further with this, I just want to give full disclosure. If my voice sounds a little tense, or if I'm sounding a little off right now, I wrenched my back out earlier this morning, so I've been in a lot of pain all day. Every time I've actually been able to walk around the house during the day today, I was going around looking like Sissy Spacek and Carrie when she's walking through the flames. Perfectly straight back, arms outstretched. Turned to my wife and was there like, how's that look, that look natural. But you know what they say, it could always be a lot worse, so here I am, recording this, and happily. There's no way I was going to stay away from this. This is number 37, and so Silver Screeners is is reaching the big 4-0 in just a few weeks, and the fact that you're still listening is pretty damn cool, not to mention validating, so thank you for clicking that little triangle that points to the right. And speaking of thank yous, before this goes any further again, I want to send a big thank you across the Atlantic Ocean over to England to Stu and Al of the Stu and Al pod for having me on as a guest last night on their show for a segment on our top three Steven Spielberg movies. Top 3 is a regular feature on their podcast, so after listening to their show for over a year now, it was a privilege to be able to be part of that feature myself. Just recorded last night with them, and with J.R. Hartley. Depending on where you are in the world, you may know his name and recall it fondly, but if you don't know who he is, it's okay. I didn't either. Apparently, he was a pretty ubiquitous TV character in a series of commercials for the British Yellow Pages back in the 1980s. Here in North America, we had Clara Pello looking for the beef from the Wendy's chain in the 80s, and in the UK, I guess Hatley was looking for his book on fly fishing at bookstores everywhere, until the Yellow Pages showed him the way. They sent me a YouTube video of the commercial, so you can look it up yourself. It looks like someone used the name as a pseudonym, actually, to write a book called Fly Fishing. But in any event, Stu and Al, top blokes, great comedy show, The Stu and Al Pod, check it out. If you're listening, guys, cheers. Alright, this episode is the third in a run of them that's hopefully getting you get up for the upcoming Oscar season. Nominations for this year's Oscars for the calendar year 2021 are going to be revealed on Tuesday, February 8th, so that's, what, just a little over two weeks away. I always go a couple of ways with the Oscars. On the one hand, there's no denying that I enjoy seeing the list and figuring out what I've seen and haven't seen. I love giving my Academy Awards program with the live talks that I do, both in person and virtual. And it's always an interesting experience to go back and see what Academy Award-winning films withstood the test of time and are just as good now as the year they came out. Looking at you with love, slumdog millionaire. And which ones withered away and went dead as a dodo. That'd be you, driving Miss Daisy. With all due respect to the always-magnificent Morgan Freeman. But I, like you, am no fool. In spite of the Oscars' best efforts not to, they're pretty transparent when it comes to their internal politics, the backlash ranging from internal campaign tactics. External scandals like political grandstanding, the logistics of the ceremony itself, which can get pretty meandering as they stretch into the third and fifth hour. But let's save all this talk for a future episode closer to this year's ceremony. Let's talk about the here and now. So for the third consecutive week, we're looking back at previous Oscar-winning films and their co-nominees. And if you've listened to the last couple of shows, then you may remember that each one goes forward in time in five-year increments. I would have kicked it all off with the first episode going back 50 years for a nice round number, but we already looked at 1971's The French Connection back in episode 19. I'll take a second here to shamelessly ask you to go back and listen to 19 if you haven't yet. What the hell, even if you have? So we began two shows back by going back 45 years ago instead of 50, to 1976, when the Best Picture winner was Rocky, and one of its co-nominees was Taxi Driver. That was two episodes ago. Then last time was 1981's Chariots of Fire, which claimed Best Picture, and On Golden Pond, which got leading acting wins for both Henry Fonda and Katharine Hepburn. Personal opinion only, of course, but of those four movies so far, I'd have to say The Taxi Driver was bleak, guttural, offensive, and 100% brilliant. Rocky was pretty good. Not my favorite of all time, but you can see why it was put on a pedestal the year of the American Bicentennial. I mean, there was a woman at the big boxing tournament at the end wearing green face makeup dressed like the Statue of Liberty announcing the rounds, for God's sake. Chariots of Fire, overall, worked for me because it didn't fall prey to the Oscar-bait cliches of melodramatic milking or overblown theatrics. Plus, you know, the musical score. Of the four films that we've looked at over the past two episodes, if I had to pick, I'd say On Golden Pond, for me, was the one that ranks fourth. I love Henry Fonda, I love Katharine Hepburn, And I can dig the themes of looking back at your life to hope that you've achieved something. Looking at estranged relationships, not knowing what the hell to do about them. The idea of each of us inevitably having to face the reality that we are growing older. But it was a little too heavy-handed and a little too theatrical for me. It was based on a stage play, and that can be tricky. It doesn't translate to the screen all that well. It doesn't come across as natural. It's a stage play, cleverly disguised as a movie, which is fine if that's what you're looking for. A stage play. But moments that might click with audiences, sitting in a theater watching a live performance, those moments might, in a movie where you have the capability of scaling back and being more subtle, taking advantage of close-ups and that kind of thing, might come across as forced and over-the-top. Anywho, in today's episode, we jump five more years ahead and we land in 1986. And if you're under the age of 40 and saying to yourself, Damn, old movies, bring it on. Then all the power to you. And if you're under the age of 40 and saying to yourself, Damn, old movies... And respect to you, but could I suggest the words of actress Lauren Bacall? It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. So yeah, each week up to this year's Oscars, we're looking at a different best picture winner and one of its co-nominees. And next up at bat is the Vietnam War drama platoon, along with one of its co-nominees. As before, the choice of best picture nominee is up to your votes in the weekly poll that I put up on Facebook on the Silver Screeners group, Twitter at FilmBuff1974. Instagram at frankmendosa1974, or you can email frankmendosa at yahoo.com. The co-nominee film that gets the most votes is the one that I cover, and thank you to all of you who voted. I was all hopped up to see the biggest response so far in this run of Oscar episodes. Each of the four non-winning nominees got a little bit of love. Children of a Lesser God with William Hurt and Mally Matlin, Hannah and Her Sisters with Mia Farrow, Barbara Hershey, A Room with a View with Dame Maggie Smith and Helena Bonham Carter. But in the final analysis, most of you went for The Mission, with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. So round two for De Niro on the show. Second week in a row for the guy. But as I've been doing, in the interest of pleasing everybody, you'll get a bonus fun fact for each of the other three as well. So that being said, like last time, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both Platoon and The Mission. Then the spoiler alert, as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both. Then the segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Outrageous one or two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. Then comes the trivia segment involving all of you, listeners. And finally, the big finish, with a preview of next episode's poll options, the next batch of films for you to choose from, from the year 1991. So rewind 40 years back to early 1987. As the 86 Oscar campaign kicked into high gear, grab your Ray-Ban sunglasses as we relive the mid-80s when waste like John Bender squared off against Mr. Vernon in Saturday Detention, Righteous dudes like Ferris Bueller took a day off? And if you were around then, come on, fess up, at least once or twice you use the expression take a chill pill? So let's go with the modern-day translation of that bygone and best-forgotten idiom and podcast and chill as we begin with the spoiler-free plot setups. We begin with Platoon, the Best Picture winner for 1986. Directed by Oliver Stone, based on his own original screenplay. Winner of four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Director, Editing, and Sound. The screenplay and cinematography were also nominated, as were both Willem Dafoe and Tom Berenger, both in the supporting category. It had a limited release in the U.S. on December 19th of 86, before opening in Turkey on the 24th, and then Brazil, Argentina, and nationwide in the U.S. in February of 87, before going global throughout the rest of that year. It's a story inspired by Oliver Stone's real experiences as a soldier in Vietnam, though the film itself is fiction. Before watching it to pull notes together for this episode, i had only seen Platoon once. It was my freshman year of college, I remember. There were maybe three or four of us in one of our dorm rooms watching it on a VHS tape. It was our last night on campus before going our separate ways to head home for Thanksgiving. Interesting choice, I do realize now, for that time of year. But watching it again for the first time since then, for this episode, I appreciated it on a whole different level. Vietnam was before my time, so I won't boldly say that I got it this time around. But seeing it through the lens of, let me absorb and critique this as a film podcaster, as opposed to being 18 years old and hanging with a few friends, those of us who are still left on campus before a holiday, I've always believed that viewing circumstances definitely affect how we perceive films, I mean, 100%. When I rewatched it this time, for this, I was watching on my own. It's definitely not my wife's kind of film. She will be the first one to tell you, to give her a musical, give her Disney, live action or animated God help us, give her a rom-com, and then we're talking permagrin. She was in the bedroom, I was in the family room, my son wasn't home, he was out working at the pizza joint down the street. My daughter was happily holed up in her bedroom, talking with a friend on some Google meet. I thought that I was keeping the volume of the film at a decent level, and I'll give you a little glimpse into the rapport that works for my wife and me. There is one scene in particular, in Platoon, well several, with a lot of gunfire, hollering, screaming of words like bully shit and oh fuck. I mean, let's face it, fairly standard battle scene dialogue, and doesn't my phone vibrate? I look down and see this text from my wife. What are you watching? She knew what I was watching. (laughs) I answered, Lawrence of Arabia. And then I said, it's Platoon. She said she wasn't expecting to hear the loud profanity out of the blue. So I said, would you prefer Platoon the musical? And never one to be outdone, she came back with, oh, is that a possibility? And I said, if we close our eyes and wish. So listeners, I'll tell you this. You want the Vietnam experience done up Broadway-style, complete with a chorus and a kickline? I can suggest Miss Saigon. You want a dramatic narrative with more grit? Then listen on to hear more about 1986's Best Picture winner, Platoon. Now, it goes without saying that Platoon's pretty brutal and gruesome. Like I said, director Oliver Stone, he wrote the screenplay immediately after coming home from Vietnam himself. He tried like hell for the next decade to get this film made, So when it became one of the biggest moneymakers of the year and went on to get him the Best Director Oscar, you can only imagine how validated he must have felt. The leading character is named Chris Taylor, played by Charlie Sheen, a young, inexperienced kid who voluntarily leaves college and enlists in the U.S. military for combat duty. As the opening credits begin, a biblical quote appears on the screen. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. The opening shot is of a couple of army jeeps driving towards the camera with sand blown around in the air. A U.S. Air Force plane follows them and then heads straight into the camera, just as we cut to a shot of a group of the latest arrivals dressed in their army uniforms and walking out into the dust that the aircraft is blowing up from the ground. Chris Taylor is among them, and as he looks around to soak in his new surroundings, he looks over and he sees body bags with soldiers who had been killed in them, being lifted up and put on the plane that he just walked out of. A separate group of soldiers walk past these new arrivals and taunt them for being the new guys. A title card shows that it's September 1967, somewhere near the Cambodian border, and that this is the Bravo Company, 25th Infantry. We get a couple of aerial shots of the jungles before watching the platoon make their way through the jungle, fending off snakes and cutting through the brush. Before we're even six minutes in, Chris is already losing his idealism as he's suffering from the heat, the bugs, the horrible stenches. He vomits. Sympathy is not passed around like a cup of sugar. He's called a simple son of a bitch. There's a close-up of ants crawling all over his neck, and he slaps them away best he can. But Sergeant Elias, played by Willem Dafoe, one of the few who really presents as, if not sympathetic per se, at least willing to lend a hand and sort of take Chris under his wing. He helps Chris out by emptying his backpack and saying to him, You're carrying too much stuff. You don't need half this shit. I'll haul it for you, but next time you check with me first, all right? He gives Chris a smile and helps him up. After standing on his own for a split second, Chris then drops back down to the ground. He's dehydrated. He's exhausted. He's overheated. Cut to the platoon out in an open area. Some of them are working. Some of them engage in banter, including a character named Big Harold, played by future Oscar winner, Forest Whitaker. They're telling Chris to keep digging, and he gives some voiceover narration of the letters that he writes home to his grandmother. The letter says somebody once wrote hell is the impossibility of reason. That's what this place feels like. Hell. I hate it already and it's only been a week. Some goddamn week, Grandma. I'm so tired. We get up at 5 a.m., hump all day, camp around 4 or 5, dig a foxhole, beat, and put out an all-night ambush or a three-man listening post in the jungle. It's scary because nobody tells me how to do anything because I'm new. Nobody cares about the new guys. They don't even want to know your name. The unwritten rule is a new guy's life isn't worth as much because he hasn't put in his time yet. And they say if you're going to get killed in the NAM, it's better to get it in the first few weeks, the logic being you don't suffer that much. You don't really sleep. I don't think I can keep this up for a year, Grandma. I think I made a big mistake coming here. Shortly after that, Chris and the other new arrivals are sent on a patrol that's likely to be ambushed. Sergeant Elias tells the new guys, including Chris, that if anything happens, don't call out. He says, we'll come to you. As they head into the jungle in the middle of heavy rain, we hear another letter to his grandmother, which gives us some character background. He writes, Of course Mom and Dad didn't want me to come here. They wanted me to be just like them. Respectable. Hard-working. A little house. Family. They drove me crazy with their goddamn world, Grandma. I just want to be anonymous like everybody else. Do my share for my country. Live up to what Grandpa did in the First World War and Dad did in the Second. Well, here I am. Anonymous, alright. With guys nobody really cares about. They come from the end of the line, most of them. Small towns you never heard of. Two years high school's about it. Maybe if they're lucky, a job waiting for them back in a factory. But most of them got nothing. They're poor. They're the unwanted. Yet they're fighting for our society and our freedom. It's weird, isn't it? They're the bottom of the barrel and they know it. Maybe that's why they call themselves grunts. Because a grunt can take it. Can take anything. They're the best I've ever seen, Grandma. The heart and soul. The voiceover ends as Chris has woken up. It's his turn to be on lookout duty, and he's sitting in the rain and the mud. When his shift eventually ends, he wakes up Junior, played by Reggie Johnson. Little time passes, and then in the shadows, he spots the last thing in the world he wants to see. North Vietnamese soldiers silently creeping up towards his sleeping unit. There's gunfire, grenades, explosions, screams of pain, total shitshow. He's wounded in the neck, hollered at, and accused of falling asleep on his watch, and when he says, I didn't fall asleep, Sarge, they weren't having it from this new guy. Now, Platoon's a two-hour film, and this is about the 25-minute mark already, and if I'm being honest, we probably shouldn't go beyond this point for the premise. I will say that the letters to his grandmother, Charlie Sheen's voiceover narration of them, they carry the film. The verbosity can get a little much, but only because sometimes you're in the middle of a really intense moment when a new letter suddenly kicks in. It's almost as if his, voice, his voiceover is an intrusion in what's going on. They do take a brief backseat during a disturbing sequence about midway through, I won't say anything about it, but it doesn't take long for the voiceover to kick back in. They serve as the connecting link, the bridge, from one experience to the next. The film's got a coherent story, a solid structure, but at the same time, it's also segmented and episodic, at least the first half is. So it's pretty much here at the end of this first experience in his story arc that we should stop. I will additionally say that Platoon's success launched an era of Vietnam-themed films that flooded theaters over the next few years. Hamburger Hill, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, both 1987. 1989 brought Casualties of War, directed by Brian De Palma, starring Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn. Oliver Stone's Born on the Fourth of July with Tom Cruise. I'm not saying these movies were made as a result of Platoon, necessarily. In fact, Platoon and Full Metal Jacket were both in production around the same time. But Platoon's popularity and its Oscar victories for sure had studios increasing their... ...expectations expectations of box office potential of more vietnam war themed films platoon is by no means the first vietnam film as far back as 1978 the best picture honors went for example to the deer hunter as far as the deer hunter is concerned Oliver of stone spoke about it in an interview with joe rogan and asserting and defending the authenticity of course of his own film he called the deer hunter beautiful but unrealistic and not grounded Let's shift our focus now to one of the other films that year up for Best Picture, The Mission. True confession time, I had never seen this one before. When I was researching 1986 to see what the nominated films were, I saw this title and I thought, huh, don't know that one. But when I saw the names Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons and Liam Neeson, I pulled a Liam Neeson and I looked at the IMDb page and I went, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will watch you. And watch it I indeed did do. The Mission, nominated for Best Director for Roland Jaffe from an original story and screenplay by Robert Bolt, who won Academy Awards for writing Dr. Zhivago and 1966's Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. Bolt was also nominated for writing Lawrence of Arabia. He was not nominated for a screenplay for The Mission, but the film did win the award for Best Cinematography. A justified Oscar win, for me anyway. Aesthetically, this film is pretty damn striking. As for Roland Jaffe, this was his second directing nomination. He was acknowledged two years earlier for 1984's The Killing Fields, which, according to my Netflix history queue, I saw for the first time back in 2013. The Mission is one of those movies that is a really, truly great story, but the execution of it doesn't exactly serve the story as well as it should as much as the story deserves. It takes place in South America in the 18th century. The screen is black and totally silent at the beginning, and we get a title card that says, The historical events represented in this story are true, and occurred around the borderlands of Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil in the year 1750. The opening shot is a close-up of Cardinal Altamirano, played by Ray McAnally, if I'm pronouncing that correctly dictating a letter that's going off to the pope so he says your holiness i write to you in this year of our lord 1758 from the southern continent of the americas from the town of asuncion two weeks march from the great mission of san miguel these missions have provided a refuge for the indians from the depredations of the settlers and have earned much resentment because of it the noble souls of these indians incline towards music It was from these missions the Jesuit fathers carried the word of God to the high and undiscovered plateau of those Indians still existing in their natural state and received, in return, martyrdom. That expository dialogue ends, and we then see the natives taking one of these Jesuit priests, and if you're hydrophobic, then the opening might not be for you. This missionary is tied to wooden beams, crucifixion style, and thrown into a raging body of water that brings him to a waterfall, an incredibly steep drop. Who does this to him? None other than the very people he's been attempting to convert to Christianity. The indigenous natives of the region, the Guarani people. And why would they do this? Because of their mistrust of the white man in general. White men had previously abducted many of the native South American tribes in order to enslave them. Because this man is killed in the name of trying to spread Christianity, in the eyes of the Pope, he's seen as a martyr. And this inspires a Spanish Jesuit priest by the name of Father Gabriel, played by Jeremy Ions to give it a go himself. He climbs up the very same steep falls to try to connect with the tribe. At first, the Guarani warriors want no part of him, and they're about to kill him, too. But then Father Gabriel plays music for them. He takes out an oboe, plays music. They're captivated, they're won over, and against all odds he's eventually able to gain their trust. That brings us to the character Rodrigo Mendoza. That's Mendoza with an E and a Z. Not my name, but so close. My name's Portuguese, spelled with an A and an S, but if I did share my last name with a character played by Robert De Niro, he aha. Uh-huh. Rodrigo Mendoza is, at first, a scoundrel, a mercenary, a slaver. He kidnaps natives and sells them to different plantations as slaves. We first see him just as a group of natives are caught in a trap that he sets that gets them literally swept up off the ground in this huge net. He's hiding behind a tree and just watching them. No emotion, nothing remotely connected to any sense of humanity. They're, of course, screaming, and the other natives and Father Gabriel come running. Gabriel looks at Mendoza, and we find out that they know each other. Because Gabriel says, So you're hunting above the falls now, Captain Mendoza. We're building a mission here. We're going to make Christians of these people. Mendoza replies, if you have the time. One of Mendoza's so-called clients or customers in the slave trade is the Spanish Governor Cabeza, played by Chuck Low. It's either Low or Low. It's L-O-W. But it's important to remember that this Governor Cabeza and Mendoza do business together. Mendoza tells Cabeza what Gabriel just told him, what Jeremy Irons just told him, that there's going to be a mission above the falls called San Carlos. Cabeza is not too pleased to hear this. And then in the next scene, we have Mendoza having a tense conversation with his fiance, who tells him that she does not love him as much as she loves his younger brother Felipe, played by Aiden Quinn, the fine actor. Legends of the Fall, Benny and June. But look at his name, Aiden Quinn, playing Felipe Mendoza. You do the math. Mendoza and his fiancée, they have weird dialogue here. He asks her, how long have you loved him? And she says, six months. So, has she been timing it with a stopwatch, a pretty specific number? I fell in love with him at twenty past one on the 14th of August, whatever. A few scenes later, Mendoza walks in and finds them in bed together and, shall we say, not necessarily sleeping. He gets angry, turns, and walks out with Felipe running after him. The two brothers draw their swords on each other and they proceed to have a duel. Mendoza easily overtakes Felipe and shoves his sword through him like a knife through hot butter. The fiancé comes running out in agony, weeping over the dead Felipe. Meanwhile, Gabriel is bringing his superior up to speed with how the Christian conversions are going. The Superior tells him to be Mendoza's spiritual advisor. So Gabriel goes in. He sees Mendoza, says to him, it was a duel, so the law cannot touch you. But you're a mercenary, a slave trader, and you killed your brother. And you loved him, although you chose a strange way to show it. Mendoza shows Father Gabriel against the wall. But Gabriel stays calm and calls him a coward. Mendoza says, for me, there is no redemption. No penance had enough for me. So Mendoza's living these moments of regret and remorse for what he has done. You kind of get the sense that he's impulsive, acts out purely on emotion. Gabriel challenges him and says to him, there is something that you can do for redemption. Do you dare try it? And it's back to the side of the conversions, the falls. The falls. And guess what? That's 33 minutes in, so I should slam on the brakes here. You'll just have to watch the film to find out whether or not Mendoza becomes a Jesuit. Aesthetically, The Mission is a beautiful film. I already mentioned the Oscar-winning cinematography. There are great shots of the natural world, the waterfalls, the mountains, the hills and cliffs, the landscape. And Ennio Morricone got an Oscar nomination for composing the musical score, and just as you would expect, it draws you in. This is the same guy who did the music for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. John Carpenter's does The Thing. Once Upon a Time in America, also with De Niro. The Untouchables, Cinema Paradiso, and the Vietnam movie that I mentioned earlier, Casualties of War. After a career full of Oscar nominations, in early 2016, he finally nabbed his long-overdue Oscar for 2015's The Hateful Eight, before passing away in 2020. As for the cast, De Niro has always had the knack for playing psychologically damaged or tormented characters. Listen to episode 35 for Taxi Driver, for example. So there's definitely that synchronicity as far as his portrayals of seeking some form of personal redemption. You could say that it's tantamount to typecasting, but I I would argue against that personally. He brings a certain fiery intensity to the screen in most of what he does. Jeremy Irons, he's solid, as he can be, given that his role is a pretty thin one. His character is more one to convey this natural interiority that gets you wondering what exactly is going through his head at any given moment. That's all the good stuff. I'd love to be able to say that the way that the story of the mission is told grabs your attention immediately from the word go and never lets go. But that's not really the case. At least it wasn't for me really the case. Visually, the most memorable image is the beginning, when that Jesuit priest is thrown over the waterfall. But the middle act of the film is pretty meandering, it's a little restrained in tone, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like I said last time about Chariots of Fire, not not every story has to have these huge, sweeping adrenaline rushes or breakneck pacing to have an impact. You get the vibe that it was made in earnest, and with forethought, and it never hurts for us to learn a little history. In this case, how the Spanish and Portuguese empires were feeling their power being threatened, and how they expelled the Jesuits from South America by the end of the 1750s. But given the major talent involved, both on screen and behind the camera, the story itself just didn't really grab me the way that I hoped it would. It plays without a whole lot of structure, which compromises the overall impact that it could have had. I can see using certain scenes in my film class to talk about things like camera technique, maybe, or the impact of a musical score, but but the whole movie itself just does not add up to the sum of its individual parts. But let's forge ahead to the the behind-the-scenes facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including the plot spoilers and the endings, are going to come fast and furious, so spoiler alert now. Let's take care of Platoon first. Number 5. The scene in the first half of the film where they're all getting high, the actors all really got high. They're inhaling through the opposite ends of the same rifle to Smokey Robinson's tracks and my tears, bopping around like David Hasselhoff on Dancing with the Stars. Lum Defoe said they lit up to get into character a few hours before the scene was shot, but the thing is, by the time the cameras rolled, enough time had passed for them to be crashing. Defoe said, quote, they were just tired and useless, end quote. Number four. In 1969, Oliver Stone came home from his tour of duty in Vietnam and he wrote a screenplay based on what he went through during his time over there. He actually sent a copy of the script to rock star Jim Morrison of The Doors in the hopes of Morrison agreeing to play the leading role. It didn't happen, of course, and by 1976, the script evolved and was titled The Platoon, but no movie studio wanted to touch it. U.S. involvement in Vietnam ended around 73, and even a trio of Vietnam-themed films wouldn't come around until 78 and 79. The Deer Hunter, Coming Home and Apocalypse Now. But in 76, Stone almost found a taker in director Sidney Lumet, Dog Day Afternoon Network, who was thinking of casting Al Pacino in the Charlie Sheen role. Number 3 Are you familiar with the name Dale Dye, D-Y-E? He served with the Marines for 20 years got a bronze star and three purple hats, die became the military advisor to Hollywood. He appears in and was the advisor for Platoon. He was also military advisor for Saving Private Ryan and the Medal of Honor video games. He made it a point to kick the collective asses of the cast when they went through boot camp to prepare for their roles. He said in 2011, quote, And I continue to do it to this day because it works. It's the only way to take a young guy or girl who has grown up thinking the sun rises and falls in their ass and who only thinks, is my hair right? Or is my trailer appropriate? And how many lines do I have in this scene? That's self-centered thinking. And it's antithetical to the way military people think. Military people understand that there are only two goals, and that's to accomplish the mission and to take care of your people. You have to teach an actor that it's got to be a really physically, emotionally, psychologically jarring experience. We had them for three weeks in the jungles of the Philippines. They lived in holes that they dug with their blistered hands, and they ate twice a day out of a ration can, if it didn't piss me off that day. And they carried real weight and humped those jungle hills in enormous heat, and they got shot at all the time. They learned very quickly. They had to rely on each other to survive, just to stay away from that mean-ass old white-haired guy. What you have to understand, I think, especially younger audiences, is that the country was extraordinarily divided over the Vietnam War. It was one of the most divisive events of the 20th century. It tore this country apart between rabid hawks who insisted we were doing the right things and equally rabid doves. And in the middle were students and social revolutionaries of one kind or another. The nation was in turmoil. We had a whole generation of veterans coming home from that war in Southeast Asia being ignored. Nobody wanted to talk about them. Because nobody wanted to get into the controversy. Nobody wanted to get into the argument. Those veterans had to keep that experience inside, and when you do that, it eats at you. When Platoon came out, the ice broke. People, no matter which side of the fence they were on, began to talk to each other. They said, I never understood your experience or why you didn't want to talk about it until I saw Platoon. It fomented a social change. Very few films can say that they did that. But Platoon did. Veterans came out of the closet everywhere and said, That's what I went through, and that's why I'm a little nervous, and a little twitchy, and why I don't talk about my experience. End quote. Number two. Charlie Sheen had auditioned for Oliver Stone a few years before the film was actually made. It was around the time of one of Stone's thwarted attempts to get the production going. Stone wasn't too impressed with him, and instead went for Sheen's older brother, Emilio Estevez. But for the 10 millionth time, financing fell through and the project was shelved yet again for a few more years. By the time they were finally able to get the ball rolling, Estevez was too old to play Chris, and Sheen impressed Stone more this time around. At the time of the production, Sheen was about 19 or 20 years old, and according to Oliver Stone, that was the exact same age he was when he was actually over in Vietnam. And number one Not surprisingly, critics raved about Platoon for its realism but it was most definitely not a global love affair. The Vietnamese government banned the film for its unflattering depiction of the Viet Cong, but in March of 1988, the Vietnam news agency reported that, quote, tens of thousands, end quote, of people were watching it over there on video, without saying where copies of the film came from. Platoon was the first U.S. film about the Vietnam War to play in Ho Chi Minh City, that's pretty amazing. And now let's turn it over to the mission. Number 5 Robert De Niro, Liam Neeson, and Jeremy Irons have all appeared in Batman films. De Niro appeared in 2019's The Joker, Neeson was in the Dark Knight trilogy, and Jeremy Irons appears in Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and Justice League. Number 4 According to Variety, the mission was shot over 16 weeks, mostly in Colombia, with three weeks at the Iguazu Falls. Number 3 In April of 2007, the mission was voted number one of the top 50 religious films in London's Anglican independent weekly newspaper, The Church Times. The Vatican also put it in the religion category of its list of 45 great films. The film was put into competition at the Cannes Film Festival in 1986, where it won both the CST Prize, which is the Technical Grand Prize, and the top award, the Palme d'Or, both of which were awarded to director Roland Jaffe. Number two. This film came out four years after the book The Lost Cities of Paraguay by Father C. J. McNaspey. The book is not mentioned in the opening credits, even though it was an unofficial source of information for the production. McNaspey also served as the film's historical consultant, which makes it even more curious that the book wouldn't get an on-screen credit. I honestly couldn't tell you why it didn't. And number one. The closing title card that appears on screen during the closing shot of a few natives rowing a canoe through the water, it reads, The Indians of South America are still engaged in a struggle to defend their land and their culture. Many of the priests who, inspired by faith and love, continue to support the rights of Indians for justice, do so with their lives. The film is based on historical events, but there's apparently not much evidence supporting the validity of the last 10 minutes or 15 minutes of the film, which, to be candid, a pretty shattering 10 or 15 minutes. There's no evidence proving that the Jesuit missionaries didn't directly disobey the orders of Cardinal Altamirano, so they may not have stayed to fight with their converts. It appears that the order left, as required by the Portuguese, before the genocide occurred. Like I said, the mission is a really well the story behind the mission is a really fascinating one one that i honestly did not know really anything about but the way that the story is packaged and delivered to me was just a little i don't know flat with all respect of course to the actual history and everybody involved in it and as promised i have a fun fact as well for the other best picture nominees of 1986 for children of a lesser god This was the very first film ever to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar to be directed by a woman, Rhonda Haynes. She was not singled out for a Best Director nomination, though. For A Room with a View, this one got Dame Maggie Smith her fifth Academy Award nomination. She'd already won twice before at that point, 1969's Leading Actress Oscar for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, and Supporting in 1978 for the comedy California Suite. She and her co-star, Dame Judi Dench, have a friendship that goes all the way back to 1958, at the beginning of their careers when they shared a dressing room at the Old Vic Theatre. They've acted together in a handful of films, including Tea with Mussolini in 1999, and The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel in its follow-up. And for Hannah and Her Sisters. Originally, the idea for the character of Elliot, played by Michael Caine, was that he was going to be an American. Jack Nicholson was even off of the role but he passed on it since he was in the middle of working on another movie. So the role of Elliot landed then in the lap of Michael Caine, the role was adjusted, and Kane won Best Supporting Actor. But he was not there at the ceremony to relish the moment, because he was off filming Jaws the Revenge, which got him a Razzie Award nomination for Worst Supporting Actor the following year. And with that, let's head over to the good, the bad, and the outrageous! The Good, the Bad, and the Outrageous, all according to Oscars.org, the official site of the Academy Awards. Platoon won the Academy Award for Best Sound, a category that also nominated Top Gun, Aliens, Star Trek for The Voyage Home, and the Clint Eastwood film Heartbreak Ridge. An interesting decision on the part of the Academy was that they had that year's Best Leading Actress winner, Mally Matlin, present the award for this category. Now, if you don't know Mally Matlin, both in the movie and in real life... She has no hearing, so she had a translator with a mic standing off to the side while she was standing at the podium signing the names of the nominated films and the sound engineers for each one. It was good to see that when she opened the envelope to see the winner's name, the translator waited a few minutes until she finished signing Platoon and the names of the five sound engineers, meaning that she got to announce the winning film through signing before he said them aloud and stole her thunder. You can see the whole thing on YouTube. Just type in Platoon Wins Best Sound. And how's this for outrageous? Go and look up on YouTube. Platoon wins Best Picture. Dustin Hoffman presented, but before he did, he rambled on for way too many minutes before even reading the first title from the list of Best Picture nominees. He's notoriously anti-awards, which makes his appearance all the more head-scratching. Dusty, either smile or don't do it. By the time the acceptance speech is finally done, the two co-hosts of the Oscars that year, Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase, gave a painfully unfunny good night before the end credits of the show begin with a song from the Broadway musical Guys and Dolls, with rewritten lyrics about the Oscars themselves. If you're not an Oscars fan, trust me, this clip is not going to make you drink the Kool-Aid. The platoon cast being legitimately high in that tent scene was more lucid. Alright, so let's swivel towards the final segment of the show, the trivia segment. Each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. Anyone and everyone's invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names if it makes anybody feel uncomfortable, which is why I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. Last time, the subject was Chariots of Fire and On Golden Pond, and the question asked, Which 1967 film did On Golden Pond's Catherine Hepburn win her second Academy Award for? She and Spencer Tracy play a married couple who learn that their daughter is engaged to Sidney Poitier. And the answer is... Guess who's coming to dinner? And coming to the victory dinner table are three listeners who sent in their answers. In no particular order, Shoutouts outs to Ed R. and Mary C. Thanks to both of you for sending your answers in and for continuing to listen. And joining them is Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho a movie-themed podcast from the Southeast, go on and give it a listen. Good going, the three of you. Memes coming your way? Thank you for playing. And if any other listeners would like to get involved with the trivia, as I always say, there is no such thing as too late. So it doesn't matter what episode you're listening to and when. However many months backwards or forwards, whatever the trivia question is, for whatever episode you're listening to, feel free, play along. For example, Kim M., you also get a shout-out and a meme coming your way for answering the question from a few episodes back. In number 34, we looked at Janet Lee's Christmas film Holiday Affair and her real-life daughter Jamie Lee Curtis's film Christmas with the Cranks. Both ladies appeared together in an episode of the TV soap The Love Boat. Thank you, Kim, for playing. And here is this week's trivia question. So, if you got the answer, or if you think you got the answer, simply let me know. Next episode, you'll get a shout-out and I will send you a personalized movie meme. Charlie Sheen is the lead in Platoon. His famous father, Martin Sheen, has in his filmography a Vietnam-themed film of his own that came out in 1979, eight years earlier. Name that film. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Platoon, The Mission, those mind-blowing Oscar clips that I mentioned, or anything about the 1986 Oscars, just hit me up on my socials. Film Buff 1974 on Twitter once again, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza, 1974 on Instagram, or you can email frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And how's about a preview of what's up next time? We're entering the 1990s, good people. We'll jump five more years ahead into 1991, the year that the Academy bestowed best picture honors to the psychological thriller Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme. But the thing is, I covered Silence of the Lambs already back in episode 27, around Halloween time, to commemorate its 30th anniversary. So, shameless plug for me once more to suggest that you partake in a Silver Screeners rerun. Go back and listen to episode 27 for all things Silence of the Lambs related. But we're still going with 1991 for the next episode. You vote for which two of the other four nominated films you want to hear about. And whichever two get the most votes, those are the ones. So the other four Best Picture nominees of 1991, JFK, starring Kevin Costner, Tommy Lee Jones, and Gary Oldman, Prince of Tides with Barbara Streisand and Nick Nolte. The very first animated film to be nominated for Best Picture. I speak, of course, of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And finally, Bugsy, starring Warren Beatty and the woman who tamed him, Annette Benning. Keep your eyes open on my socials for the poll and take it from there. And that just about wraps everything up for episode 37. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I'd be very grateful if you could rate or review this podcast on whatever platform you use. Be that Apple, iTunes, Spotify. Good Pods is always a great one to use. It's a great help in terms of boosting the show's visibility. I'm open to any and all honest feedback and suggestions for future episodes. But I'm going to close out now. My back is screaming Ave Maria. It is time to take another Advil. So until next time, keep on screening. I'll see ya.